Hey, before we get started, just a heads up, this episode discusses themes around sexual assault and rape. If these topics are difficult for you, please feel free to skip this episode. And please know that you can always contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, or you can call the Family and Sexual Violence Hotline 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club. A podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. And today we are launching a brand new series. Oh my and God. We, <laughs> and we're so excited about who we're speaking with. This series is going to be called Matilda. Give me the drums. <laughs> question time. Wow. Which is a totally original thought and idea and name. I don't think anyone's used that before. <laughs> Except for within Parliament. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. No, nah, no, thanks. Our here's the thing about our question time. You're actually going to get some fucking answers. We do want to give a quick shout out to one of our Instagram followers, Louise Briffer, who wrote into us and suggested question time as a cool segment name idea. And we were like, yeah, that is a cool name. Let's use it for this new series that we're starting. So thanks so much, Louise. We are so, so pumped to say that every ah, like month-ish, we make absolutely no promises on the timeline for this one. But every so often, we're going to be popping up with an episode where we'll be sitting down and chatting with someone involved in the world of politics. And by that, we absolutely do not mean only politicians. On today's episode, we are chatting with the incredible Saxon Mullins. Saxon Mullins is a sexual assault survivor and the Director of Advocacy at the organisation Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy Initiative. Now, you may well have heard Saxon's name before, but just in case, let's give you a little bit of background. So this all starts back in 2013, when Saxon went out clubbing with a friend in King's Cross. Late into the night, a man took her to the alleyway behind the club and the legal system would spend the next four years trying to categorise exactly what happened next. Now, Saxon has always been clear. She says that she did not consent and what happened to her next was rape. But in New South Wales, a rape trial doesn't always revolve around whether the victim consented or not. It also revolves around whether the perpetrator had reasonable grounds to believe that the victim consented. Now, the court actually found that Saxon didn't give consent, but in the end, the defendant still walked free because the court also found that he had the mistaken belief that she did. In the four years since then, Saxon has fought tirelessly to change New South Wales consent laws to an affirmative consent model. Now, Matilda, what is an affirmative consent model? Yeah, so affirmative consent is a change in the way that the court has to think about these cases. In this kind of model, the defendant has to show the steps that they took to actively obtain consent. And finally, last week, the State Attorney General Mark Speakman announced a raft of changes to improve New South Wales consent laws. Most importantly, that they are now going to adopt an affirmative consent model. In this episode, we talk to Saxon and also have an unbelievable amount of fun talking to Saxon. She was such an amazing guest to have on. I do just want to be her friend in real life. I may move to Sydney for it. But we mainly speak to her about how she, as just kind of a regular member of the public, managed to navigate the political system and help meaningfully change state laws. And most importantly, we chat to her about how you find the strength to keep going when you're facing unbelievable adversity. Oh, and we also talk to her about scones. 
Yes, that also came up. (laughs) (laughs) We think you're really going to love this one. Please enjoy this episode. And thank you so much to Saxon Mullins for being such a legend and coming on to talk to us. Hello, Saxon. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are so grateful to have you on here to talk about the changes to New South Wales consent laws, but also your journey of activism in helping bring about these changes. I'm so excited. (laughs) So, Saxon, who are you? Um, Wow. (laughs) Who am I? So, I I could take that existentially, but I'll I'll take it head on. Uh, My name is Saxon. Um, I am an advocate and uh, a sexual assault survivor, and I am also the Director of Advocacy at Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy. You're extraordinarily impressive, and we're just here so we're very excited to have you here (laughs) and we're just us so (laughs) thanks for indulging us um Matilda and I are in lockdown right now you are you are not in lockdown you're in the safety of New South Wales um it's a bit rude but yeah I feel terrible about it um but we would love your advice what pandemic hobby did you take up during this like the last year is there have you got any advice about pandemic hobbies we can take up Oh, pandemic hobbies. That is a good one. Mostly, I just got into unnecessary arguments on the internet. But outside of that, <laughs> probably baking at about 10pm was the fave of mine. Ooh, any any then, great dishes? Um, I feel like a scone is <gasps> so simple. And yet when you get it right, it's like, pff, all right, move over. Every other chef ever, because it's me and I've made a scone. <laughs> Amazing. It's pretty good. That is true. It does hit the spot. It does. Bit of cream, bit of jam. Being like very, uh, like very European Australian, like no idea where my ancestors are, fr- are from. The closest I kind of can get to like heritage is like eating a scone. I feel like, <laughs> like sometimes I'm like, like ah. I'm connecting with my people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who they are. Yeah, I don't know which people. I'm sure they committed some terrible atrocities, <laughs> but I feel like they'd be proud of me for eating this scone exactly. in colonized land. <laughs> now that I'm yeah. saying it, now that I finish. Mm. <laughs> Well, that went swiftly dark. Let's 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 move on. Yeah, that's on me, guys. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Look, okay, we'll move on. Sorry, Saxon, for really just like bringing the mood down that you had to straight away. But like, let's get on to some lighter topics, like consent laws. Oh my god, yes, absolutely, easy peasy stuff. <laughs> So we mentioned just before that the laws have changed in New South Wales now, amazingly, fantastically, to affirmative consent. Can you run us through a bit of what affirmative consent actually is and why it's important? Sure. So affirmative consent, um, I think it sounds like, you know, a really big topic to to handle, but it really just means that consent is um, actively sought and actively communicated um, between people wanting to engage in a sexual activity. So Boiled down, it just means if you want to have sex with someone, you say, hey, do you want to have sex? Hey, would you like to do this? Are you enjoying this? Does that feel good? Those kinds of questions and just checking in with your partner or whoever it may be and just seeing if they are having a good time. And just for the clarity of people listening, is this um, very specifically verbal consent? Is there other elements to it or is this a real change to let's, let's have a chat? 
Um, it, it isn't explicitly verbal consent. So it just means that uh, someone needs to do or say something to ascertain consent. Um, and that's just to make sure we're really encompassing all types of relationships that people have. Not everyone communicates verbally, not everyone communicates in that way. And so just making sure that we encompass everybody when we're talking about affirmative consent. Now, Saxon, this seems like really good common sense law to me. Like this seems like something you'd already have in a legal system. Could you explain what was the law in New South Wales up until these recent changes have been announced? Like, So it wasn't an affirmative consent model. What was it? So it just means that someone could say that they mistakenly believed that another person was consenting without having to ask them if they had been consenting. Their reasonable belief could just be based on their thoughts of, oh, well, I just assumed she was consenting because she didn't run away, because she didn't fight back, because she didn't do X, Y, or Z. So it's just changing that what it means to have a reasonable belief that someone is consenting, moving away from the old-fashioned notion that someone has to yell or scream to actually be being assaulted to the model that we see in society today of you needing to communicate that to somebody and ask them and them to reply. And you came to sort of be an advocacy in this area after having sort of first-hand experience with how that legal system can be pretty rough to go through. Do you feel comfortable telling us a little bit about the legal process that you had to go through? Yeah. So um, I was sexually assaulted behind a King's Cross nightclub in 2013. Um, I went to the police the next day uh, and it went to trial in 2015. Um, There were two trials and two appeals um, that followed me going to the police. Um, And basically, ended up uh, with the High Court upholding our grounds of appeal, but ultimately deciding that uh, a third trial would be too onerous on the accused. And so so we left it there. Um, but it kind of was the perfect highlight of why these laws don't work. Uh, so my second trial ended with the judge saying that even though in my own mind I hadn't consented, uh, the accused reasonably believed that I was based on me not running away, me not physically fighting back, those kinds of old-fashioned notions. Um, and so I think it was it was that that sort of spurred me into thinking, you know, this. I'm not the only person that this has ever happened to. I'm not the only person whose case has turned on this, you know, reasonable belief in consent. So why is this still how the law works? This isn't how we engage in sexual acts with one another, and it shouldn't be. So why is that the basis of our law? So just to recap what you're saying, you the, the court said, yes, like you didn't consent to this activity, but the accused believes that you consented to it because you didn't run and scream, um, which is a very common thing that happens in sexual assault cases. Often the the victim survivor will just freeze. Um, how did you feel when you heard that decision? I, you know, it's a, it's a lot of shock and confusion and hurt. It's like, does my voice actually matter at all? Because I'm telling you now that I wasn't consenting. Um, you know, my freezing should have told him then that I was not consenting. Uh, so it, it's almost like, you know, what, why do we have to rely on this really, you know, outdated idea of what we view as a sexual assault for someone, you know, if she, if a judge can see that I was not consenting, how does that not get through to the person who I'm with? You know, how I just, it was so 
confusing and hurtful. And it was like, why did I go through all of this just to find out what I knew at the start that I wasn't consenting and he didn't care? One thing that sort of struck me looking back through, like obviously we've followed your story for what, four years now since Four Corners, but going back through, I was sort of thinking like, gosh, you it's almost so lucky to even get to that point in the legal system to get a trial at all to get one outcome how did you feel knowing that the legal system almost uh put more weight on the accuser's mental state than your own it was definitely something I thought about throughout specifically the second trial. Um, I felt like the judge was just taking everything that the accused had said at face value, not really examining it and just dismissing everything that I said. Um, and in fact, she did mention that she found me unreliable. So I don't know if you want to publish this podcast episode because it will be riddled with lies. But um, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's it's such a weird thing to be up there and telling like this most horrible thing that has ever happened to you and then deciding it either doesn't matter or it's not true. You know, we actually believe this guy and not you. Um, to go through so many different things, po- police interviews and trials and appeals and all of that, um, and to still be questioned like that is really it's really disheartening, you know, and you're right. Like I am lucky to have even gotten as far as I got. A lot of people can't go to the police. A lot of people don't want to go to the police. So like that's step one that, that a huge group of people have not even gotten to. I got so far and, you know, where did it get me in the end? And the rest of Australia learnt what happened in this court case when you appeared on a Four Corners episode in 2018. If it's not an enthusiastic yes, it's a no. That's it. And then you're committing a crime. (laughs) Simple as that. It must have been really scary to go on national television with such, you know, this incredibly vulnerable and brave story. Did you watch the episode when it aired? I actually um, had a football game at the time that it was airing so I watched it about 45 minutes after it aired. That's a bit of a baller move. Oh actually good pun there. Good pun there. That's so that's so how were you concentrating during that football game? Well I was like it was the weirdest thing because the episode hadn't even aired by the time I started and I was like are they looking at me because they saw me on four corners? Like, Saxon, pull your ego in. It has yeah. not aired yet. It's 17 <laughs> minutes until it airs, so you're going to be all right. Um, but it, I was just, I mean, I like, I really like football. I'm not saying that I'm good at it, just to be very clear. Terrible. Have not improved in the four years. <laughs> but it was good fun, so it was probably like a good distraction while everyone else was viewing it for the first time. I could have like a little bit of a delay. Um, but I did, I watched it actually on the train home from football. Um, and I was just like, it, it is kind of embarrassing in the same way that like listening to any recording of your voice or like watching yourself do anything is kind of embarrassing. Oh, we but- hate listening to ourselves on this podcast back. <laughs> we hate it so much. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously about the same weight, you know, just yeah, like a weekly yeah, yeah. podcast, an absolutely life changing, world changing. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think it's the same level of like, seriousness, vulnerability, yeah, definitely on the same level as what you went through, 100%. (laughs) I think so, about the same. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, I agree. (laughs) But, um, I mean, it was was really, you know, when you're doing something like that with a team as 
reliable, amazing as the Four Corners team and specifically with Louise Milligan. Like there isn't a lot of fear that there's, you know, something's going to go wrong or they've edited it in the wrong way or, you know, I was just sort of blown away by the response as well. Um, because I had watched it that little bit later, I could see the, you know, Twitter things coming in as as I'm watching it. And it was really nice. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't, don't always get that response when they come forward. Mm. And so I felt really lucky not only to be telling it with, with such a good team, but to, you know, have such amazing support afterwards. And I mean, what what was the aftermath of all of this? Like, I, I know you wrote for The Guardian talking about sort of walking out of that final court case. And, you know, I guess I, there's so many, I feels like there's so many kind of like real like line in the sand moments for you in the last sort of eight years. What What was the moment that you just like decided I'm going to run with this and I'm going to make a difference, I'm going to make a change? Like, how do you even, I mean, just the kind of bravery to be able to do that after being knocked back like again and again and again just like astounds me. I'm very interested to hear how that <laughs> happened. Well, I think actually the knockdown again and again actually almost gave me more motivation to keep going because I was like, I haven't made it this far for me to be walking out of the high court alone and being like, well, I guess that was it. Like it was, I'd gotten so far that at that point I may as well have been like, well, I could wallow. Not that I did not, I did wallow, but I could continue to wallow for many, many years after this and, you know, make that my point of pride that I'm a wallower. Or I could take this anger and this momentum and actually sort of do something with it. And, you know, for some people that's that's not what they want to do, um, which is totally fair because it's super tiring and people on the internet are mean sometimes. But for me, it was really what I needed, even if I didn't super know it at that moment how important it would be to me um I I must have known in a way because it it became so important to my healing and my journey as well as a young person it just it genuinely felt like something had really shifted after that moment and now in the last six months or so we've had so many other People come forward as well. You have sort of Brittany Higgins and Grace Time and these other people sort of speaking very publicly about this. How do you feel about sort of seeing other people kind of take the same road that you've taken? And also, is it kind of weird to have this like strange club of like very cool women who probably shouldn't have to speak publicly in the way that they are? Um, I think I think it's always great when when someone you know, sees their journey to activism and realises it and, you know, flourishes in that role. I think that's always really, really good. Um, it is, you know, it's a weird thing for for someone to know your name and the reason they know your name is because they know what happened to you. You know, that's always going to be sort of this weird dynamic. But um, I think it just shows that we are more willing to listen sometimes uh, with the amount of sort of high profile, as it were, survivors that come forward. But I think sometimes it does say something about about our media and about, you know, who gets the voice, um, who gets to be that chosen survivor of the year, of the month, of the week, um, that, you know, we're all white, uh, we're all young, you know, we, uh, it's, it's really nice that survivors are sometimes listened to, but I think the media needs to do a, a, a better job at, 
at who we're listening to and what stories we're amplifying as well. Um, because, you know, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable um, when, you know, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of programs that are happy to have me on, but they're happy to have me on because my story isn't that that hard to tell in a way because, you know, for various reasons, I'm young, I'm white, I was a virgin at the time, I, you know, had I'd never been out in King's Cross, I had all these things that made me, quote unquote, the perfect victim. So, you know, it's easier to tell my story than it would be if there were other factors involved. And so it's good that we are able to talk about sexual violence, but I think we need to be able to intersect that with other issues and other avenues because we're we're missing out on a whole bunch of survivors whose stories just aren't being told or aren't being listened to. So the next 24 hours after this Four Corners episode aired moved very swiftly from a public, like from what we could see in the public. So the next day, the Attorney General announced that the New South Wales Law Reform Commission was going to review the New South Wales consent laws that had affected your case. What was going on behind the scenes? Like what was what was happening for you when all this was going on? Well, I so I actually found out the night before that they were going to announce this Law Reform Commission review. Um, Louise Milligan told me at the, the at the ABC um, uh, reception area and I just burst into tears. I was like, I can't believe it's actually already made a difference. Um, like I I didn't think that it would. And then I knew that the morning after my episode aired, um, the budget was getting released. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, no one's going to talk about this because they're going to be talking about whatever ridiculous statue we've decided to spend $400 million <laughs> on. So, you know, why would we, why would this continue in the media cycle? But, you know, people still talked about it. Um, and I, I was just amazed by that. I just thought, you know, thank God that – that this story was told in a way that, you know, it wasn't about just my case. It was about how these laws actually act towards survivors. Um, I, yeah, I was I was blown away by it. So you've yeah. won your footy match. You've <laughs> gone on national TV. Yeah. What's next? Yeah, next day. I'll go day by day. Um, <laughs> no, but okay, six hundred and four. So. Louise Milligan kept forwarding me all the nice emails that they got uh, from the Four Corners episode for weeks after, which was very nice of her to do. Um, But I was just, you know, for the first few weeks, I was just totally like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, am I supposed to put a submission into the Law Reform Commission review? Like, I genuinely, my first submission, I I made two because the first one, I think I just sent them the Four Corners episode and I was like, you get it, you know, (laughs) you you understand this. But, uh, you know, through doing a few um, talks after coming forward, um, some really small things for like Newcastle Uni Women's Collective, things like that, through that I met some incredible people who are already you know, doing amazing things in the space like Nina Fennell. Um, And I met uh, Dr. Rachel Bergen, who is uh, on Rosara with me, um, and Professor John Crow, and just like a bunch of amazing people who really help shape, um, sort of, it helped shape my advocacy in a way that wasn't just uh, reactionary, but really understanding how these laws relate to each other, how they really affect not just myself, but, you know, wider, the victim survivor community. Um, And 
through that, we, you know, did a lot of, we did submissions to the New South Wales Law Reform Commission. We did some to the Queensland Law Reform Commission. Um, and so we were able to work together to bring this real victim survivor and expert opinions together to create real impactful statements, I think. Okay, so could I just clarify it? When did you set Rosara up with Professor John Crow and Dr. Rachel Bergen? Um, so we actually only officially launched in uh, February of 2020. Okay. Um, but we had been collaborating with each other and in contact with each other for a few months before that, a, a, a while before that, um, and uh, Twitter besties and all of that kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, we were working together and collaborating a long time before it was sort of made formal. Um, and, you know, ever since we uh, launched Rosara in February of 2020, it's just been absolutely manic. We just have a billion things to do. So it's been really, really good. So the reason I ask this is because in the meantime, you're doing all these submissions and advocacy work. How are you balancing that with like, were you working on top of that as well full time and like having a life? Like how did you, I think a lot of people who engage in in activism often struggle with that balance. How did you do that? (laughs) It is really hard and I'm still not excellent at balancing the things because I I do have a full-time job. Um, I mean, my work is amazing and they're always, you know, letting me skive off a little bit. Um, but I think it is a really hard thing to balance. Um, you know, a lot of the time I was getting up early, um, doing interviews or whatever, and then going to work and then spending my lunch break, writing up something or reading up on something, you know, the cycle continues. So it is like a bit hard to balance. And I'm really terrible at saying no to things, like really awful. You said yes to this podcast, we can tell. (laughs) I know. You didn't take that much convincing. (laughs) (laughs) No, this one was very easy to say yes to. There was no little angel in my head being like you need to sleep um but you know sometimes it'd be like oh could you come talk to our you know whatever of four people about the consent laws and I'm like you bet I can do that on a Tuesday night what else would I be doing um so you know a couple of things like that but I mean it's always you're you're also kind of weighing up like if someone wants to talk about this you know people don't want to talk about consent laws I mean, politicians, there are, there are no votes in this. They don't care about it. People, uh, what are the laws? Do they really matter? You know, that kind of thing. So when people want to talk about it, I'm like, hell yeah, let's talk about it. Let's do this. I'm, I'm ready. Two years passed from your Four Corners episode, roughly about over two years. And the New South Wales Law Reform Commission announced their recommendations. But did they recommend moving to an affirmative consent model? They did not recommend affirmative consent. Do you remember that day? Like, Yes, I do. Um, I think Rachel and I must have spent about 45 minutes on the phone every hour on the hour. Uh, just like I, I can't believe, you know, they spent so long, got so many submissions and they ended up you know, here. And, you know, that's not to say there were a lot of good things in their um, final recommendations. The the way that they did the review really was survivor inclusive and, and, you know, we we can't fault them at all for that. But we were incredibly disappointed that they um, decided not to recommend affirmative consent laws. Um, And, 
you know, purely for the reason that it was my case that had sparked this review. And the rec- the final recommendations as they were would not have changed the outcome of my case. So it's like, were, were you know, over two years of, of reviewing worth it if it didn't fundamentally change anything. And we like to look back at the law all the time. Having a lot of reviews in the law is not always a bad thing, but why would we want to have another review in a few years to look at the exact same issue again? Why would we waste our time? And why would we hurt survivor cases in the meantime? Why not just fix it right now? And so what was the process from there, from this kind of like, Mm, good but nowhere near good enough recommendations to where we came to last week where the laws are being changed. I, you know, I can't speak to what changed the Attorney General's mind, uh, but I would like to believe that it was me. Um, <laughs> we I'm will not, also you know, believe he, that it's you. <laughs> he's not we, say no, we just but. assumed it. I think everyone just assumed it was. <laughs> like... We, so um, Rosara got, you know, we got meetings with anyone who would sit in a meeting with us um, and Zoom definitely has made that easier to fool politicians into having meetings with you. Um, so we, yeah, we met with uh, the Greens, we met with Labor and we had a face-to-face meeting with um, the Attorney General, Mark Speakman, and uh, basically just said, we will not be in favour of these laws. We will not say this, you know, does what it needs to do unless you legislate for affirmative consent. That is our bottom line of what we find acceptable. Um, and if you don't change this, you don't have affirmative consent and and we just won't shut up about it, basically. Um, so possibly the fear of annoyance has changed the consent laws in New South Wales, but, like, you know, I'm happy with that. Do you think it was important that it was you in that room, like having sort of very unfortunately sort of publicly gone through this and sort of be people being very aware of your circumstances, like actually having that victim survivor perspective, how important was that, do you think, to actually making this happen? I think it was definitely important, um, you know, to couple that survivor experience, that really intimate firsthand experience with not only assault but the policing process, the court process, the appeal process, all of that, Um plus the experts who are there to back it up what you're saying with facts and with evidence is a really strong um, message. It's a really strong front to come and say, this is exactly why I need to change the laws, basically covering all of your bases. And, you know, it's I think it's really unfortunate that someone needs to come out as a survivor to sort of get that level of respect almost or get that level of, you know, um, uh, thanks for, oh, thank you so much for, you know, giving us your time, you know, as a survivor. There are a lot of women and men in all different fields who are survivors but who don't want to come forward and I don't think they should have to come forward. So I think that definitely is something powerful about, um, you know, saying that I was assaulted and this is what happened to me and this this is what needs to change. But I don't think we should put all of our stock in that and, you know, recognise that there are a whole myriad of experiences that people have that they, you know, may or may not want to talk about. So that's why I think it's really important to have the experts there as well to sort of back up so that it's not just survivors who have to come forward. Um, it's, It's that end evidence that really pushes it forward. You could just listen to women in general, like rather than yeah. having to see. Yeah, it's like cut and 
can't watch me bleed like I'm a person. Why do I have to prove to you that something, you know, this happens. Like you don't have to see my face to know it happens. Mm. We're hurtling towards a good conclusion, a good outcome. But before we get there, what, was there any conversations or meetings that you had with people? You don't have to drop names. You don't have to spill that tea. Please do. (laughs) I mean, please do. But like, um, were there any conversations that you had with people which were really difficult or where that you had to navigate like a really, like someone who was just not understanding the logic of this easily? What's the dumbest thing a politician said? (laughs) That's what we're asking. (laughs) I don't think there were too many dumb questions from politicians, um, from people in the public, oh, my God. Um, But from politicians, it was mostly just the beautiful phrase of playing devil's advocate. You know, what does this mean for, yeah, what does this mean for um, the accused? Does it shift the burden of proof? Blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, I love to come away with a great story. So devastated that they just chose the path of least resistance, but, you know, good for you. Um, but they, you know, I mean, from members of the public, oh, my God, there was some real, I, my favourite after, um the you know affirmative consent was was announced all of these people I, it will not surprise you to hear on reddit um were saying oh, no. that they will now need to um have cameras all over their houses and film when they sleep with women so that they don't get accused which is beautifully now two crimes <laughs> yeah i was about to say that is just creating another legal problem for yourself and also i mean look i don't want to generalize i don't want to put anyone in a group but you're on reddit at 3am I don't think you have to worry about the women that you sleep with. I think we can make – that's not a generalisation. I think that's a pretty safe <laughs> assumption. <laughs> yeah. Just why don't you focus on, like, getting an exercise routine or something like that, like getting eating a good healthy, sleep you know, like meditating. There's yeah. some stuff There's some stuff more directly in, in your line of worries. Okay, so you've had, like, four years of legal troubles. It's eight years since this all started. It's been just kind of grueling and finally things start moving in the right direction. Can you walk us through like the last couple of months? When did it, when did we start hurtling towards the good conclusion we're about to come to? Did you find out about Uh, it early as well? Did you get the inside goss? I did not find out about it. (gasps) I wish. Oh my God, I love gossip, even if it's not about me. If your friend's sister hurt her foot at football, I want to know about it. But no, <laughs> I did not get any insider information. Uh, so we had it, we announced it on Tuesday. I found out on Monday night. Whoa. That That's was pretty all. close. I was at the press conference. You won't believe this. After I got the call uh, to tell me that we were doing affirmative consent and could I come to the press conference, I had to go to football. <laughs> Oh, a full circle moment. We love it. That is the bookends we wanted and we needed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they they called me. They had warned me on Friday that they were going to release, uh, they were going to put forward the bill, but they couldn't tell me when would I be around in Sydney in, like, the next while, like, not months away you know, will you be around? And I was like, I I live here and that is not very specific. So I'm going to say, yes, I will be here. Um, But yeah, no, I got the call on Monday night from the New South Wales Attorney General, Mark Speakman. um, And he said, "Uh, we're going to, you know, go with, we're going to accept all 44 of the Law Reform Commission's recommendations. And I was like, okay, good. 
Um, and he was like, oh, but we're going a step further and we're doing affirmative consent. And I was like, oh, what? Oh, my God. I was ready to hang up on you like a child. Um, <laughs> but I did not have to deploy those tactics. Just I was so shocked. I, w- I didn't even know what to say. I was like, oh, thank you. Like, I don't know. Thank you doesn't feel like quite enough, but ah. Uh. Good job, mate. You did all right. Consider me a swing voter now. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's. I think that's such an incredible outcome, and it's 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 yours is such a story of triumph. Like when you think back to, at least from a public perception, when you think back to where this started to come to a point where you know you have been listened to. That must be a pretty cool feeling. I don't want to put. I don't want to assume your feelings there. How did it feel? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah, no, it was amazing. Like, still, uh, still in shock, clearly. But like, it was so incredible that all the work we had put into this. Um, you know, specifically, my colleagues have been working in this space for you know, many, many years before I joined. And of course, there are so many survivors whose stories just added to to all of this. It felt like, you know, when I when I walked out of the, the high court in 2017 after our case was dismissed, I was actually physically alone and I felt alone. I was just totally walking in silence on my way back to my office, you know. And when I walked out of the press conference on on Tuesday it was such a different feeling I just felt like not only was I surrounded by all these people thinking this is incredible how good is this this is amazing but I felt surrounded by my my friends and colleagues at Rasara I felt surrounded by survivors who had worked so hard put their stories out you know, done all of this stuff to try and get just this, what seems like a really small change in the law, but will have such a massive impact. It felt incredible. I'm beaming. I love this. This is so, it's just so wonderful to hear such a positive story. (laughs) It just feels like in this space, um, it's so, it feels so rare to get a win, Right, like I mean, from individual court cases, from the way the whole system is to to these laws, or when laws come into effect, they don't even work, or something like that. Like, how does it feel that like you've actually like something's really fundamentally changed in New South Wales now? I mean, unbelievable. It still feels unbelievable. Like we actually got this changed, and like the wins in this space are never. They are, and if they're wins, they're not really wins. It's a court case, but you know, like it feels weird to celebrate some things because someone was still assaulted. You know, you you don't want to clap and cheer at the end of something like that. But this just felt pushed by strength and pushed by um, the need for this to change, and so it feels like something we can celebrate um, and have been celebrating, um, but also feels like a brilliant motivator to keep going you know, we got this done, we got this changed, we can change everything else, we can change the education system, we can change how we speak to each other, how we communicate about these things. And, you know, we can change the whole thing. The end goal is not 
oh, I want to see these be prosecuted through the court system. The end goal is not to have more convictions. The end goal is always to stop sexual violence in Australia. And, you know, the every single step we make towards that is going there. Um, you know, even if there's feel like small steps, big steps, whatever, we're all going towards that goal. Um, and it just feels like we have this momentum now um, of, of a win to help push us forward. What is next? What, what are you going to use that momentum for? I mean, obviously, I want every state in Australia to have affirmative consent laws. I feel like that is the easiest next step from what we've just done. You know, you, you um, it's been in Tasmania for I think 15, 20 years, something like that, um, a long time. And we now have it in New South Wales. It's up to the other states now to fall in line. And, you know, I am emboldened by my win. So I'm going to be knocking on every state attorney general's door for the next four years because I know I have it in me. Um, But, you know, I think that's our next logical step. But um, I think uh, our what else is really important is the education aspect of it. Um, you know, if we just change the law, it's it's never going to be enough. We really need to teach people proper relationships and sexuality education. Absolutely. And for other people who want to create change, maybe they want to change a law, maybe they want to, uh, you know, start a change in their workplace or their school, whatever the level may be, what advice do you have for, we have a lot of young, like young people who listen, what advice do you have for someone who wants to create change, but doesn't know where to start? Um, I think find those like minds, find those people who also believe in the thing you believe in. You know, I think schools and unis are great places for those groups where you all have that one core thing in common. Um, so I think that's a really good place to start. And for me, I surrounded myself with people who um, are geniuses. Everyone at Rosara is just like the smartest person in the world. Um, and so that definitely helped, you know, uh, bolster my legitimacy, but also help me to understand different sides of this thing that I'm fighting for. But yeah, just finding those people that think what you think. Um, everyone's bringing a friend to everything they do. So, you know, you you have this growing community of all these people um, and then you can send the 2,000 emails that will get someone to, you know, do a law reform commission or whatever. But, yeah, I think finding finding your allies is really important. And just finally, you said, you know, sending those 2,000 emails that will get change. How do you keep going when you are presented with all these hurdles? I think you have to celebrate the small wins and by small, tiny, teeny, tiny wins. Like one more person joins your collective, celebrate that win. Um, Someone replies to your email, celebrate that win. Like you have to find the good aspects of a really crappy um, time. You have to find the good aspects of a really crappy journey. Um, And you know, surrounding yourself by those people who are in the same boat, you can not only celebrate with them, but you can commiserate with them. You can both be like, wow, that was a bit shit. Anyway, on to the next. Um, But just, I guess you have to see it for, for what it is. You can either, you'll feel this way, whether you work for it or whether you don't work for it. And it's a totally, totally valid option if it's too much to just stop, you know, You cannot hold the weight of the world in your hands. If you are having a tough time, you're allowed to put it down. But 
if if that's what you want to do, if that's what keeps you moving forward, then then you're you're going to feel this way no matter what. So if if what you want to do is to to make change, then then you can keep pushing through, celebrating those small wins, finding those friends, and you'll you'll get there. Thank you so, so much for speaking with us, Saxon. It's been amazing to kind of hear the backstory of how this all comes together. And honestly, like we're going to be corny, but it's like genuinely very inspiring to hear the tenacity that you've had throughout Mm. all of this. And being a young woman of our age kind of makes you (laughs) really like think about the fact that like, oh, actually some stuff isn't out of reach that really seems like it is if you just like are absolutely annoying enough to call it (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are so so grateful, and we're so honored that you're our first interview episode um, guest. So, yeah, I am so honored. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we had such a great time talking to Saxon, but we know that the topics we talked about aren't easy to talk about. So if this was particularly difficult for you, please remember that there are resources out there. Yes, you and anyone you know can always contact Lifeline on 131114 or the National Family Domestic Violence and Sexual Violence Hotline 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732. We'd also like to acknowledge this podcast was recorded on the land of the Bunurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, our theme music was by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced by Anthony Furchie and Alex Tai. Mixing and editing by, wait for it, Anthony Furchie. Woo! I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm Matilda Bosley. And, and this, this is Old Boys Club. Club. We're still recording remotely and we can't hear each other very well. <laughs> Matilda, hit me with it. Justine, talk into the microphone. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm talking to the microphone. Okay, blah, 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 blah. we'll just rewind slightly. Re- you shit. I am so shit. <laughs> and Matilda's going to leave that in the episode. That's just going to stay in there. <laughs> um, okay. light bullying. I just like, I like looking at people's faces. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk in this direction.